Well, hey, excited to be with you all. As many of you know, we're doing a series over uh, about the names of God. And so I've been asked to be able to jump in on, on uh, one of these. And today uh, we're going to talk about the name Jehovah Karen Yesha. Jehovah Karen Yesha. Now, I say that like a Missouri farm boy, so the last time you'll probably hear me say Karen Yesha is that time right there just to respect that beautiful language. But in English, it means the horn of our salvation. Now, that one I can say, all right? And uh, we all get that, don't we? The horn of our salvation. I'm going to ask you to turn with me this morning to two different verses of uh, Scripture or passages. The first that we're going to read second, okay, so you can mark it and uh, be ready for it, is Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 22. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. I'll say it one more time. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. And then put your silk ribbon there or hold it there with something and turn back over to Psalms 18.1. Psalms 18.1, the focal point there is actually Psalms 18.2. I think I'll read verses 1, 2, and 3. Psalms chapter 18 and verse 1. I want to welcome those who are joining by live stream as well. Uh, excited that you could join in and, and uh, thrilled to be able to see you all here as well face to face. So again, here's the, the, the name today is, you know, the horn of my salvation. And what we're going to see here in these three verses I want to read at the outset here in the Old Testament in Psalms chapter 18 is something that's written by the human instrument, David, King David, all right? Now, we know the true author of this entire book is God, but the human instrument that he uses in Psalm 18 is David writing a song to God under his inspiration, and it's because he just got rescued. He just was against insurmountable odds, and God bailed him out as he continues to do. And, and David begins to reminisce of all the times that God has absolutely come to his rescue, that he has been his fortress, that he's been the one that has, has delivered him from what looked like insurmountable doom, okay? And then as you read through chapter 18, we're not going to do that uh, this morning, but as you read through chapter 18, I would encourage you to do so, like it often does, is the Holy Spirit allows David, or the, uh, the Holy, just God allows David to even begin to, I think, say things that David wasn't even keenly aware of what he was talking about because it was God being the author and about a rescuer that is to come and even in anticipation of a resurrection. It's an incredible, incredible chapter. But time after time after time, whenever we hear or think about in the Old Testament the horn of our salvation, the horn of my salvation, it always points to the fact that Jesus is coming. And that's why I want to spend the majority of our time this morning uh, talking about that rescuer while he was actually here in human form. So let's flip on over. Well, let, let me first of all read these passages here in uh, Psalms chapter 18. Listen to what it says. David says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation. There's the words. Say horn of my salvation, my stronghold, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Let's pray together. Father, may we just let those words soak into our hearts and into our minds for a little bit this morning. God, I pray that you would allow us to really know that time after time after time here on planet Earth, you have come to our rescue. I know, Lord... I can't even begin to number, and even in our current situation, the time that you have just been our deliverance. And, um, and Lord, the main thing, what's larger than all of those things that we can talk about that you've delivered us from here on earth, is, is our, our main enemy. Father, we've got a real live enemy. 
We have sin in our life. We're separated from you. As a result, we have to go to hell, separated from you for all eternity, and then suddenly you bring the rescue. Suddenly you bring the deliverer. You bring the horn of our salvation. And we know it's Jesus. And so, Father, may we, as we continue to study about him, Lord, may you give clarity into our hearts and into our minds. And Lord, we'll be careful to give you all the credit and all the glory. We ask it again in the incredible name of our King Jesus. Amen. So here we are over in Mark chapter 10. Hopefully you marked that. Here's the reason why we chose Mark chapter 10 this morning, all right? Number one, here's an account where Jesus, the horn of my salvation, is here in human form. And a man came running to him, fell on his knees before him, and asked this incredible question. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, he's saying to him, Jesus, what do I need to do to know that whenever I die, I'm going to live forever in a place called heaven with you? There's no greater question to be asked and answered. And here's the incredibly cool thing about this particular story. He's asking Jesus... We're going to hear this morning the answer that Jesus gives to someone of what someone must do to know that they have overcome the worst enemy of all and to know that we have a relationship with God and to know that our sins are forgiven and know that we have eternity in heaven. So I hope you'll hang on with everything you have as we listen to this incredible story. So I'm going to begin to read here in, in, John, in uh, Mark chapter 10. And verse 17, I'll read the entire text, and keep your Bible available, it'll be on the screen as well, uh, because we're going to come back and look at just a couple other segments of this, of this passage here in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, and this is what it says. Now as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way and sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. Well, in verse 17, we find at the start of the story that Jesus was kind of minding his own business, or more appropriately, minding his father's business, right? Walking on this dirt road toward a little village is where I picture him. And suddenly a man came running to him, dropped on his knees before him, and asked this incredible question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do to know that I'm living forever? What do I need to do to know that I'm going to go to heaven whenever I die? Now, whenever I first read this, a lot of things began to go through my mind about the man that was approaching Jesus. I wasn't so concerned about his outward characteristic, tall or short or what have you, but I just wondered what made this guy tick? Who was this man that asked the question in the first place? So staying within the context of the scripture, I want to introduce to you in a little better way the man that asked Jesus the question, what must I do to know I'm going to heaven? This story, well, first of all, I'll just say from all the accounts, it's in three different gospels, and, and I would say, it, it, my, the first thing that, that comes to my mind is this guy was excited. I think he was passionate. I think authentically he wanted to meet Jesus. He wasn't trying to do the trickery or anything that a lot of people would do back in that day. Jesus' reputation preceded him greatly at this point of his ministry. And I really believe this guy authentically wanted to meet Jesus. I think he was sweating. I think his heart rate was up. He was running because he was so passionate about meeting Jesus. So I think he was an excited guy. This story is also recorded in the book of Matthew. And Matthew puts another piece of the puzzle in that Mark doesn't mention. And that's the fact that he was a young guy that came 
came running to Jesus. This story is also recorded in the book of, of uh, Luke, and Luke puts another piece of the puzzle in, and that is that this guy was a religious leader. He was a leader among the Judeans. He was, he was a very powerful, very influential guy. Even though young, he had a lot of power, a lot of influence, and he was this religious leader among the Jewish people. And so all three accounts say that he was rich. He had a lot of money. So here running to Jesus excitingly was a rich young ruler among the Jews. A rich young religious guy, very powerful guy among the Judeans. Another characteristic, I believe this guy was humble. Now every guy's got an ego, okay, I can attest to that. But I can tell you at least outwardly, it seems like he's humble. The Bible says he bowed on his knees on that dirt road in front of Jesus before he popped this all-important question, what must I do to go to heaven whenever I die? He even calls him good teacher whenever he begins to ask the question. Seems like he's a humble guy. I also believe this guy was intelligent. I believe this guy felt that Jesus had the answer to this question he was getting ready to ask. Now, I think he also felt he already had the answer, and I think he felt that Jesus was just, just going to shore up what he was already believing. That's not what happened. But I think this guy really believed Jesus had the answer. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd never heard this story before, and somebody came to me and told me the story to this point, and said, Bob, you write the ending. How do you think it's going to end? I would think that this guy is going to surrender to Christ at any moment. I mean, think about it. He's asking the right question, definitely asking the right person, God in, the, in, the, in human form himself, Jesus. Seems like he's got the right attitude. Seems like he's a humble guy. I would think that just around the corner, he's going to surrender and know that he has this peace in his life. But that's not what happens. As a matter of fact, it goes to destruction at the end of the story. But I want you to know that this is a man that came to Jesus asking this all-important question. So in verse 18, we know the question, we know the man, what must I do to go to heaven whenever we die? Jesus begins to answer the question. So listen to what Jesus says a person must do to know that they have that relationship and that they're going to heaven. In verse 18, Jesus said, So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Remember, just before the guy popped the question, he said, good teacher. And Jesus answered with a question and said, hey, hold on a second, man. Why did you call me good? You just said, good teacher. There's none that's good but one, that is God. Now, what was Jesus doing here? I believe Jesus was setting a trap. Now, the word trap is a rather strong under, uh, word, you understand. But I believe it was a trap of love. And Jesus was putting a little bit of bait on this trap of love. I believe he was giving this man an opportunity to confess how much he knew, or maybe better yet, understand how little he knew. Because Jesus said, hey, hold on a second, son. Why did you call me good? Nobody's good but one, that's God. That would have been the perfect time for this Old Testament scholar, this religious leader, to say, that's why I called you good. Because you are God. You're the Messiah. You're the one that's here to die on the cross for the sins of the world and raised from the dead. But this guy knew nothing of the sort. Jesus continued to put a little more bait on this trap of love in verse 19, when he said, you know the commandments. Jesus knew this guy was religious. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Now, I want you to know, there was a little bit of mud in the water for me years ago whenever I first began to read and study this text. And here's the reason why. You see, we know the Bible teaches clearly that you and me going to heaven is not based upon our works. And it's a good thing it's not. Amen? It's based upon Jesus. As a matter of fact, the number one theology, if you would, the number one idea of how to get to heaven across North America is what we call a balancing scales theology. 
And what it means is if you can just do just enough good to outweigh your bad, then you'll squeak into heaven by the skin of your teeth. But if you do more bad than good, you're going to have to go to hell. And I'm not being condescending whenever I say this. It's just not true, and thankfully it's not. But I'm telling you, it was my idea for 17 years of my life, even though I was a church member. Uh, you know, I, was, I didn't come to Christ till age 24, so I'm not sure I was comprehending in the first four years of my life. But I'm telling you, for most of my life until I came to Christ... That was my idea. Surely there was something I had to cough up to be able to deserve heaven. Surely I had to meet God somewhere in the process. There has to be something done. So I'm not being condescending whenever I say the majority of people in North America still believe, you know, balancing scales if they do just enough good. It just makes sense humanistically, doesn't it? It seems like we must have to do something in order to be able to deserve a place called, called heaven because we all know the sin in our life and how much we deserve to go to hell. But the truth of the matter is, I'm so glad it's not about balancing scales. I'm so glad that God wants us in heaven worse than we want to get there, John 3, 16. I'm so glad that we are all sinners, and because of that, we can't go. Sin separates us from God. The least of my sin completely separates me from God. He's so perfect, so clean, so, how, so holy, and how else would he be? I mean, he's God. He's so incredibly clean. What I would view as the least of my sin separates me completely away from God. He can't even allow me to come into his presence. And believe it or not, that's good news. Because it takes the pressure off of our shoulders to find a way back to God. Listen, we are separated, helpless, hopeless. We don't have, have any choice as human beings in our strength except hell. That's our only way. We can't even take a baby step toward God. I can't be Baptist enough, Method enough, Presbyterian enough, non-denominational enough, whatever. I am a Christian with a capital C and a Baptist with a little b, and there's a very big reason for that because it's always about Jesus. So here's what God said. You're stuck, you're helpless, you're hopeless, you need to be rescued, not 99% of the way. You can't even cough up 1% because you're a sinner and you'll always have something in your life. I'm going to meet you 100% of the way. And he sent the rescuer, didn't he? The horn of my salvation. He sent his only son, Jesus, born of a virgin, walked this earth 33 years, 100% God, yet 100% man, died on a cross and rose from the dead on the third day. And when he did that, if we're willing to surrender to that, man, I'm telling you, he gives us this gift of heaven that we don't deserve. So if you, if you believe that's what the Bible teaches, say amen. Now here's why there was mud in the water whenever I first read this passage. A man came to Jesus, said, good teacher, what must I do? Jesus begins to answer, and then he says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your mom and dad. That sounds like works. That sounds like balancing scale stuff. Be a good enough old boy, and you might make it. That's not what he's saying. As a matter of fact, what we find is Jesus continues to put this bait on this trap of love of a very religious guy by using some of the Ten Commandments. On purpose, Jesus left out Numbers 1 through 4. Intentionally, Jesus mentions Numbers 5 through 10, the last six. Now, why would that be? Well, we know that, that these are recorded, the Ten Commandments, in, De in uh, Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. We won't turn there today because of the time factor. I'd encourage you to read it whenever you get home. Again, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. I'm sure you know that. But I want you to know that Jesus very intentionally did not mention number one through four. Because the first four commandments have everything to do with a man here on earth being able to have an intimate relationship with God in heaven. Now, the last six commandments, the commandments that Jesus did mention on purpose... Well, all doing, uh, all have uh, deals with people having a relationship with other people here on earth. 
I want you to listen to these last six again. Do not commit adultery. That's, don't cheat on your spouse. That's a relationship here on earth. Do not murder. That would definitely put a damper on a relationship here on earth. Do not steal. Do not you know, lie, basically, defraud, uh, uh, bear false witness. Do not defraud and obey mom and dad. All dealing with other earthly relationships. Jesus knew this man was a good man. The guy asking the question, I believe, was pretty high on morals. He was a religious guy. He wasn't trying to trip up Jesus. I think he was really long to meet him. And Jesus knew this guy knew everything he was to know about man's relationship to other people here on earth. But in the same breath, he didn't have a clue that a man here on earth could have an intimate relationship with God. He didn't know. So at this point, Jesus didn't even bring it into the scene. Now, the first four commandments, the commandments that Jesus did not mention, says something to this effect. Do not take any other gods before me. Do not worship any graven images or make graven images. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. And remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. All dealing with our relationship to God. So, the rich young ruler takes the bait in verse 20. Listen to what happens. So he, the rich young ruler, answered and said to Jesus, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. In other words, he said this. I I thought that's what you were going to say. Kind of counting on it, as a matter of fact. You know what? I've obeyed those from the time I've been little. I want you to hear this, Jesus. I've never cheated on my spouse. I've never murdered anybody. I've never stolen anything. I've never told a lie. That was a lie, by the way. I've never, you know, coveted defraud. I've always obeyed my parents. According to your answer, which is exactly what I thought you were going to say, the gates to heaven are about eight miles wide for this old boy. I will breeze right through. I've got it made. And again, this guy was counting on religion and good works, and I think he was a good at it. He was a good guy. You know, there's places in the Old Testament where The scripture records that men like these would stand in the hot sun for hours with scripture being read over them. This guy was in the temple every time the door was open. He probably had more Old Testament scriptures committed to memory than anybody in this room. Now, he didn't memorize them with his heart, but he sure had them in his head. This was a good guy. And as a a result of that, he really thought that's what it was going to take. And it just makes sense. It makes sense. But Jesus allows the trap to throw in verse 21. It says, Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, One thing you lack. He said, Rich young really, you're, you're a good old boy. You stood in the sun for, for hours. Listen to Scripture. You have hundreds of Old Testament Scriptures committed. You're in the temple every time the door's open. You're a good husband. You're good to other people. But the question you asked me was, what must you do to go to heaven when you die? And the answer is this. It's not religion. I can't stress it enough, church. So many people in our culture believe that some tie to some religion is it. I cannot tell you how many conversations that I'll have with precious creations of God. Precious people. And they'll go back to a religious act. I was baptized at age six after I walked to Olive, a great church, again at age 11, in that same great church. There's one big problem. Pastors don't have the ability to read the mind of people. He he was doing what he was supposed to do, but I was just joining the club. But I still thought that some way, somehow, a religious tie was the way. Some people believe it's being sprinkled at birth or some kind of thing that their parents are or have done or 
some classes they completed age 12. And I'm not saying any of those things in and of themselves are wrong, but without Jesus, they're nothing. There's only one way to, to heaven. So listen to what Jesus says. He says, we'll begin at verse 21 again. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack. Now here it is. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. Now hit the brakes. It sounds like balancing scale again. (laughs) Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor? I mean, isn't that works? What was Jesus meaning whenever he said, go sell everything you have? and give it to the poor. The only way we can understand that is to back up and look at the very first clause of verse 21. It says, then Jesus looking at him. Your translation may say, then Jesus beholding him. You know what it meant whenever it said, then Jesus looking at him or beholding him? See, if that would say, then Bob looking at Mike, I would be able to tell you that Mike is one of the tallest guys I've ever met. I'd be able to tell you he's got on this nice white shirt and he's a really handsome guy, okay? If it said, then Mike looking at Bob, Mike would be able to say he should be a movie star. You know, stuff like that, right? Okay, I'm kidding. But anyhow, I'm just telling you, the only thing we have the ability to do is look on the outside. But whenever it said, then Jesus looking at him, he wasn't looking on the outside. He was reading this guy. He knew every bit of filth, every false motive, all the garbage, all the trash, all the good works, all the religious stuff, he knew it all. And in the process of then Jesus looking at him, Jesus already knew what or who this guy's God was. And all Jesus said to this guy was the same thing he preached consistently throughout the gospel. You've got a God, it's not me. Get rid of your God and pick up the cross and follow me. This guy's God, in his case-specific situation, was his money. And Jesus said, go get rid of it. Sell everything you've got. Give it to the poor. Pick up the cross and follow me. Now, for most in this room, maybe all of us, we might go, whew, that's good news. Money's not my God because I don't have any, okay? But we all have a God. We all have a God. And there's some great people, I'm telling you, good-hearted people that think if they can just work their way there. But Jesus is saying, get rid of whatever it is that's in your life that you're worshiping and pick up the cross and follow after me. Follow after me. You may say, okay, wait a second. Pick up the cross and follow after me. What does that mean exactly? Well, here's what it means. I'm thankful for the forgiveness of the gospel, amen? Man, I'm thankful for forgiveness. But we don't just have a forgiveness gospel. You understand the true gospel is a surrender gospel? It's us turning our back on sin, repenting, and surrendering to Jesus. You know, Billy Graham said, back in the day that Jesus said, pick up the cross and follow after, after me, nobody was, was, had precious, you know, jewelry uh, hanging around their neck and in their ears that there was a cross. I, I think that's cool today. But back in that day, the cross meant one thing and one thing only. It meant death. I'm telling you, it meant death. Jesus was saying, even in the death. Billy Graham says in the modern day, it's as if to say, pick up your electric chair and follow after Jesus. It's an incredibly strong statement. So now you may say, well, Bob, hold on a second. You spent the first little bit of the message saying we're sunk, we're helpless, we're hopeless, we can't even take a baby step toward God. Is it possible for someone, a human being, to actually have that kind of radical surrender? I mean, pick up your cross and follow after Jesus? Well, the answer is yes, but I need to explain it by telling you a story. Once upon a time, there was a king who had a great kingdom. And this king found out that he had cancer and had a short time to live. 
And he knew of a peasant in his village that really loved God. So he had his soldiers go out and summons the, the peasant to come into his chambers. The peasant was scared to death. He'd never even been around the castle, let alone in the chambers of the king himself. His knees were practically knocking together whenever he walks into the chambers of the king. The king lifted himself very fairly from his bed. He walked across this large chamber floor, and he walked up to the peasant. He said, peasant, and the peasant said, yes, sir. Yes, your honor, what can I do? He said, I have cancer. I have a short time to live. I know you have a great relationship with Jesus. Can you tell me what do I need to do to know that I'm going to heaven when I die? He said, yes, your honor, I can tell you. The Bible says that we're all separated from God regardless. We're all stuck. We're helpless. We're hopeless. We're sinners. Sin separates us from God because God is so perfect, so pure. He can't even hang out with sin. But he made the way back. He made a way for us to return to a perfect relationship with him. He sent the rescuer. He sent his only son, Jesus, born of a virgin, walked this earth 33 years, 100% God, 100% man, and he was perfect. And Jesus, who was perfect, died so the men like you and me who are not perfect could live And on the third day later, he rose from the dead because he can do anything. And because he can do anything, he can forgive us of everything if we just surrender to him. We just need to pray and communicate and surrender. And the king said, oh, wait, wait, I just need to pray a prayer? Well, let's just get that out of the way. And he said, well, no, sir, I don't think you're following me. No, 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 if I just need to say some words, just, he said, no, your honor, let, let let me tell you this. He said, you need to be willing to come with me right now. You know to the, the main drag of the kingdom where you have that pig pen? the marketplace, where you sell the hogs. You need to be willing to come with me right now, take off your crown and robe, climb over the fence into that mud and slop and mire, and get on your knees in that slop and, and claim Jesus as your king. He said, what? I'm the king. That's absurd. Take off my crown and robe and get on my knees in that slop and mud and mire, and I'll never do it. And the peasant said, then you cannot be saved. A couple weeks passed, and once again, the king summons the peasant. They had the same conversation. Less than a week later, the king, thinking about it day and night, couldn't even sleep, was just saying, man, I just want the world to know that Jesus is my king. Man, I'm nothing. I'm just a human being. I, I want to surrender to him. I, wanna, I want his forgiveness. He has the peasant come back in. He lifts himself from his bed. He walks across the chamber floor, and as he's going by the peasant, he said, let's go. And he said, excuse me? He said, I'm ready to go to the pig pen and pray. I don't care who watches. I want people to know I'm surrendered to Jesus. He's my only way to heaven. Let's go. And he opens the door and takes about three steps down the corridor. And the peasant said, sir, your honor, where are you going? He said, I'm going to the pig pen to pray. You told me I had to go to the pig pen to pray. He said, sir, I never said that. I said you had to be willing to go. Now that you're willing, you can surrender to Jesus right here in the privacy of your chambers. But here's the point. What's God looking for? Perfect people. Nope. Thankful for that one. He's looking for willing hearts. Say willing. Say willing. Listen, we're to repent of our sin. This is a surrender gospel. But it's not based on our works. I'm begging you, do not, do not hear me say, man, work so hard to stop sinning and work so hard to follow after. It's not about our works. It is a free gift. We can add nothing to the cross. But it is about men, women, boys, and girls coming before God and saying as sincerely as I know how, I'm willing to give you everything. I'm willing to turn my back on at all. I'm willing to follow after you. I'm willing. Say willing. He's looking for willing hearts. Human nature, it's so hard for us to stay within balance. 
One wall says, if you ever sin again, you're going to lose it. He'll drop you like a hot rock. That's not biblical balance. One wall says, just believe there's a God out there and you'll make it. That's not biblical balance. But biblical balance is people that are saying, I'm not just jumping through a religious hoop. I want a real live relationship with you and God hear my heart. I'm going to fall short. I already know me. That's why you came and died and rose again. But I'm willing. I'm not playing games here. I'm surrendering to you. You see, guys, 35 years ago this month is whenever I made that surrender as a 24-year-old man. And I want you to know something. I have not been everything I promised Jesus I'd be for him. But he's never stopped being more than everything he promised he'd be for me. And he'll never let you go. It is not based upon our works, but it is based upon people who are consciously coming to God and not just reciting a prayer and walking down the aisle with the warm fuzzies. And you can come to Christ reciting a prayer and walking down an aisle with the warm fuzzies, but I'm saying it's an embrace of the gospel. It's an embrace of the horn of my salvation. It's an embrace of Jesus. My favorite part of this entire text is back in the first part of verse 21. It says, Then Jesus looking at him, we, we, we talked about that, what that meant, right? I'm telling you, he looked at all the filth, the garbage, the wickedness, everything. Listen to the next two words. Loved him. Let me read those together. Then Jesus looking at him, loved him. Do you know that today he loves you? He loves you on your worst day. He loves you on your best day. He loves you. You are precious to him. And he's looking for his precious creation of people to respond to him and saying, I'm stuck, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless, I can't get to heaven, I'll never be able to stop sinning, and I'm not excusing that away, and I'm not justifying it, but as long as I'm in this human body, I'll always have a sin issue. But God, I believe you sent the rescuer, Jesus, and Jesus, you died and you rose again, and I'm willing to surrender to you. You are my oxygen, you are my only way to heaven. You are the horn of my salvation. You are the deliverer for me of this place called hell that I'm going to hit head on. You're my only deliverer. And I trust you, your death, your burial, your resurrection, to get me to heaven. Man, Jesus looking at him, loved him, and he loves you today. Well, the story does not end well. In verse 22, we close, and it says this. But he, being the rich young ruler, was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That word sorrowful is a strong word. It means to be grieved. It means to be literally be appalled. His heart was torn in two. This was not an easy, you know, brush something off your shoulder kind of thing. He battled with this, but he chose to walk away because he wasn't willing to give up his earthly treasure to gain treasure in heaven. He walked away. And if there was a verse 22 and a half, you know what I believe it would say? I believe it would say, and Jesus watched him walk away. Well, Bob, what do you mean by that? Jesus didn't say, bless God, turn around and accept me or I'll strike you dead in your sandals. I'm trying to give you heaven. As much as it broke the heart of God standing there in human form, he didn't force him. The decision, the choice was on the shoulders of that man. 
And he, he fought through it. And he rejected. He walked away. And we all have a choice today. If we're not 100% sure if we died tonight that we'd spend eternity in heaven, we have this choice to say yes, but we have a choice to reject. And if there's a thump going on in your heart, an urgency in your life, something that's saying, man, I need to embrace this. I'm begging you, don't take that lightly. That's the creator of the heavens and the earth loving you so much that he's drawing your heart. But he's not going to force you to be a robot that will serve him or else. Another reason why I say verse 22 and a half would have to say, and Jesus watched him walk away, is I also noticed he didn't say, hold hold on, wait a second, wait a second, just turn around. How about this? Sell half of what you got. Give it to the poor. Pick up the cross. Follow after me. It, It wasn't, let's make a deal. It was all or nothing. Listen, it was willing, say willing, or nothing. Someone on the way out the door in the 8 o'clock said, you know what else I think 22 and a half would say? So what's that? She said, Jesus wept. Amen to that. It breaks his heart. But I'm telling you, the choice is on our shoulders. And I wonder where you are today. See, I, I just have to ask the question, are you 100% sure if you died tonight that you would spend eternity in heaven? Are you sure? Because Jesus himself says, guys, It's only through him. He is our only way. And right now, any man, woman, boy, or girl that's listening can simply communicate this from your heart of hearts to God. If this is your fundamental conviction, belief in your life, God, I'm stuck. I'm a sinner. I'm helpless. I can't even take a baby step toward you. My strength, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter. I have to go to hell. But I believe you sent the rescuer your son Jesus born of a virgin walked on this earth 33 years 100% God yet 100% man died on a cross for me and rose from the dead on the third day and I'm trusting his sacrifice Jesus you who are perfect died so people like me who are not perfect live and Jesus I don't want you just to be the God of my pastor my priest my church my great aunt I want you from this moment on, to be my God. This is you and me, one on one. And that relationship is our way to heaven. Have, have you done that in your life? See, the, the questions are not, are you a member of a church? Have you been baptized? Were you sprinkled at birth? Were you confirmed at age 12? I'm not knocking stuff. I'm just saying without Jesus, it's nothing. And I've done a lot of those kind of hoops but it wasn't until age 24 that I realized that all those facts that had been crammed into my head needed to be a relationship in my heart. And you can start that relationship right now by communicating with him. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed and David's going to come. and We're going to have just a little bit of music before we do yet another celebration of worship here in just a moment, celebrating the Lord's Supper. And what a great day to be able to do that. But I, I just want to ask you, Are you 100% sure? See, David's going to come and just begin to play the keys. And If you're here this morning and you're saying, I'm I'm not sure that if I died tonight that I'd go to heaven, I want to encourage you to do something that will take some courage. 
Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to encourage you, if you feel the need to do this, just to stand to your feet wherever you are and come up and sit on one of these front pews. Just sit down. Don't, don't come up and stand. Just come and sit down and somebody will approach you. We'd love to be able to talk with you and share with you. Or you can do this. As soon as this service is over, catch one of us. Roger and I will be at the door. There will probably be some others there. Just come by and say, hey, I don't know. Those three words, I don't know. And let us just slip off and share with you. Maybe you've already made this commitment to Christ and today there's some doubt in your life. Hey, you can just shore that up to know that, yeah, sure enough, at age 12 you did. There's nothing wrong with making sure that you know. And maybe today is a day that you need to say, yeah, I want to start that simple relationship. I want to surrender. I'm willing. I'm willing. 